This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Exting by the Fulda family. The Midrash tells us that Rabbi Gamliel lived in a certain neighborhood, and each night a woman who lived there began wailing. She had recently lost a son, and it was a young son, and when Rabbi Gamliel heard her crying, he also began crying. But interestingly enough, he began crying about a totally different issue. He began crying about the destruction of the Beis Amikdash. And he would cry so much that the Medrash tells us that his eyelashes literally began falling out, at which point the next number of weeks his students recognized something was amiss. They studied it and they realized that he spent hours each night crying. Each night this woman would come out wailing and each night Rungamil would join. She would cry over the loss of her son. He would cry over the loss of the base of Migdash, over the temple. Rav Gifter asked a very interesting question about this Medrash. And that is the woman had a very good reason to cry. Her son died. Rav Gamliel had a very good reason to cry. The temple, the base of Migdash was destroyed but they had nothing to do one with the other. Why is it that when this woman would be crying about the fact that her son died, all of a sudden that would spur Ramagamliel onto bitter tears? Before that, he didn't cry. Because of her presence, he did cry. There doesn't seem to be any connection between the loss of her son and the base of Mikdash. And Rav Gifter Zetzal answered that there is a very real connection. And that is that all of the suffering, all of the suffering that we go through is because we are in exile. The way we live now is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way Hashem intended it to be. It's not the way man was designed or created to be. And the state we live in is not natural. It's very opposite of the way it's supposed to be. 300 years ago, in this country and throughout the world, life was very, very hard. People had to work, chop wood, sweat, work 12, 14 hours, barely eke out a living. There was no heat, no running water, no air conditioning. Life that we know wasn't. Clothing was very, very few, very rough, and their existence was physically hard. We live in a different world today. We live in a world of opulence and luxuries. We enjoy tremendous, tremendous gifts. Kings of yesteryears could not begin to imagine the luxuries that we have. We get into an air-conditioned car. We drive around. We buy brand new clothing. We have beautiful shoes. We live in perfectly climate-controlled environments. In our world that we live in, we don't suffer. And yet the reality is that I claim we suffer more now than people did then. You see, physically, life is very comfortable now. But if you start asking people what's doing in their life, you find an awful lot of trouble, you find an awful lot of issues. Do you know that in the past 40 years, clinical depression has not doubled? It has not quadrupled. From 40 years ago till today, the amount of people who are clinically depressed has multiplied by a multiple of 10. Ten times as many people today report clear depression than did 40 years ago. 40 years ago, the average episode of a serious depression issue was at the age of 30 or above. Today, it's climbed down to 15 years of age. And if you ask people about what's doing in their life, you see a lot of trouble, a lot of tribulations, there's divorce, 
there's fighting, there's depression, there are issues, there are various addictions, and that's before you get into the internet and all of the trouble that that creates in and of itself. And when you quickly realize is that we enjoy tremendous physical pleasures in this world we live in. We enjoy a tremendous standard of luxury. We have freedom, open education. Everyone here can basically afford not just to eat, but to buy what they want. And despite the fact that diseases are controlled, despite the fact that so much of what mankind suffered for millennium has been obliterated, we suffer now to an extent that man a hundred years ago could not envision or imagine. And I think this Medrash is telling us a tremendous concept, and that is that the suffering that we go through, whether it be watching the Islamic Jihad that we just got to watch here, or the threats from around us, all of that is not supposed to be part of the reality. The Jewish nation is supposed to be on our land, exalted, holy, mighty, feared by the rest of the world. We're supposed to be an Am, a Nivchar, a chosen people, and all of the suffering, the pain, the torture, the depression, everything that we go through isn't supposed to be there. But it's there because the current state is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to live in Israel. The Beis HaMikdash is supposed to be rebuilt. Mashiach is supposed to be here. And the Jewish nation is supposed to live a very, very different lifestyle than we do now. And with that lifestyle comes tremendous joy, tremendous satisfaction, purpose in life, where you wake up in the morning with a real sense of understanding why I'm here, what I'm living for, what I'm trying to accomplish. And there's a sense of joy, a sense of happiness that is dramatically lacking from our lives. And the question that's relevant is what can we, today, sitting here, do about it? The base of Mikdash is destroyed. Mashiach is not here. Because I'll tell us that exactly the sin for which the base of Mikdash was destroyed is exactly the sin that's repeated generation after generation. And if we but cure that issue, then in a heartbeat, in a flash, it changes all those frightening images of Islamic Jihad, all the frightening images of the world threats, everything that we have to suffer under vanishes like smoke. But we, the chosen nation, Hashem's people, have to do that which we were chosen to do. And Chazal tell us the primary sin, the main reason that the second base Migdash was destroyed was not because of desecration of Shabbos, not because of the internet, not because of Arias, not because of illicit relations, none of it, not murder, none of it was the main cause. The Gemara tells us the main cause was sinas chinam, baseless hatred. Baseless hatred was the reason the Beis Amikdash was destroyed. Baseless hatred in our current times is the reason why it has not yet been rebuilt. And gentlemen, ladies, that is the cure. If we could get a grip as to what the issue is and then deal with it, everything changes. But we have to understand what this means. What is baseless hatred? What does it mean to deal with it? How can we change it? And I'd like to share with you a Medrash Rabbah that gives us an interesting insight. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the king. But he wasn't merely a despot in the sense of an evil tyrant. He was something of a philosopher. And the Sar HaTabokim, his chief butcher, Nebuchadnezzar, was known as a soldier philosopher. They didn't just murder people in cold blood. They created worldviews, entire philosophies, to justify it. And the reality is that whilst Nebuchadnezzar deeply hated the Jews, very much wanted to conquer Israel, he respected greatly one person, and that was Yirmiyah Hanavi. Because the entire world knew of the wisdom of Yirmiyah, the entire world knew him as a prophet of God, and Nebuchadnezzar was given very clear directions. Kill the people, but don't touch Yirmiyah. Enslave the people, but don't touch Yirmiyah. Torture the people, but don't touch a hair on the scalp of Yirmiyah the Hanavi. And the Medrash tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar entered Israel, and he destroyed the base of Mikdush, and began enslaving hundreds of thousands of Jews, he found Yirmiyah and he told him, I was given a directive by the king, Nebuchadnezzar told me you are to be untouched. A little while later, Nebuchadnezzar was inspecting some of the slaves, and who does he see locked up in the column? Yirmiyah Novi. The men were being pulled away with choking chains around their neck, and in the back of the chain was Yirmiyah. Immediately he goes over and tells the guards, free him. What are you doing to this man? He frees Yirmiyah. A little while later he goes to see a large group of young men being taken, their arms tied behind them, all by, tied together by a rope. And who does he see in that group? Again, Yirmiyah. And again and again, each time he frees Yirmiyah, and each time he sees them back in the very enslavement, back with the slaves being marched out. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar says to Yirmiyah, what are you doing? There are only three possible explanations for your behavior. Either you're a false prophet, or you're a masochist, or you're a murderer. Either you're a false prophet, because all of the years that you told the Jewish people that the temple would be destroyed, their land would be taken over, you were lying, and now that it's happened, you're so shocked by it that your guilt has overrun you, and that's why you're behaving this way. Or you're a masochist, you just like pain. Or you're a murderer. You know that Nebuchadnezzar gave me a strict order not to harm you, and you know that if it's found out that you're enslaved with the people, he'll kill me. One of three is the reason why you're doing this. And the reality is that none of those reasons was the reason that Yirmiya was doing what he was doing. The reason that Yirmiya was doing what he was doing was because he felt the pain of his people. He felt the pain of his nation he felt the bloodshed, and he wanted to be with them. I can't stand to see my nation being taken. I can't stand to see them suffering. Let me join with you. And that's pretty clear and obvious to anyone who studies the events. And the question that I'd like to ask you is, if this soldier philosopher, Nebuchadnezzar, was so wise, so learned, why couldn't he understand that which is obvious? Why do you have to say there's one of three possible answers? Either, 
Either you're a false prophet, you're a masochist, or you're simply a murderer. Why wasn't it obvious to him as it is to us that he was a leader of his people who was so broken, so distraught that he wanted to share their pain? And I think if we address this question and try to get a better understanding of his medrash, I think we'll have a much clearer understanding as to this issue called sinas chinam and how we are to cure it. And to do this, I'd like to share with you the following observation. I claim that there are three stages in human relations. Three stages of advancement, three stages that a person has to go through if they really want to be what we would call a caring, good, giving person, a real mensch. The first stage is not so obvious, and I'll share with you what it is. A friend of mine's grandmother was living in a two-family house. She was an older woman, and it was an older apartment, and the kitchen sink was right above another apartment below them. The floor of the kitchen had been worn out. This person's grandmother had asked the grandfather a number of times to fix the floor. The grandfather was busy, whatever, didn't get around to it. Anyway, one day this woman, Mrs. Palagon, is standing there washing dishes. She puts her foot down, and lo and behold, her foot goes right through the floor. The floor had worn out so that she put her foot through, and she fell down, and her foot came down into the apartment below. And there she is hanging, and she finally sort of drags herself up, and when she sort of finds herself in a seat, she realizes that a shoe had fallen off into the apartment below. A minute later, there's a knock on the door. The woman from the apartment below comes in. Ms. Palagon says, please come in. The woman holds the shoe in her hand and says, is this your shoe? And Mrs. Palagon says, yes, thank you for bringing it to me. The woman says, do you know that this shoe fell into my batter? It ruined my challah. Now, I have an important observation to share with you. If you're ever in an apartment and you see a foot come through the ceiling and a shoe fall into the batter of your challah, maybe it's appropriate to ask yourself the following question. It could be that this shoe was attached to a person. It could be that this shoe was attached to a human being. That human being fell through the floor. This human being is an older woman who, by the way, suffered the rest of her life because of that fall. Maybe the appropriate response is, Madam, are you okay? Is everything all right? But you see, what the person down below saw was a shoe. And she forgot to make that connection between the shoe and the human being. And if that sounds humorous, I'm afraid that we oftentimes fall prey to that exact mistake. We are very nice people. We're very kind people. We're very considerate to other people. But you ever notice that we walk around with this sort of bubble Everyone outside of my bubble doesn't exist. They're not people. You ever get the New York City stair, by the way? The New York City stair is like this. You could walk right... I've been ignored by 5,000 people walking down Fifth Avenue, and that doesn't bother me. But if I walk into a shul and I get the same New York City stair, it's a little shaky. But you see, the first rule in developing into a real mensch is to understand that there are other human beings that I deal with all the time. And there's a shoe that's attached to the person. And even though it may sound obvious, we don't often make that connection. And we deal with other people as if they're objects, 
as if they're just whatever. And we fail to make that very critical step that there's a human being attached to this. I was a high school Rebbe in Rochester for many years. And as you know, high school guys sometimes get a little unruly. There was a rule that the yeshiva made. You can use words, you can be rowdy. If you punch another student, you would pay a large knas. Then it was, a number of years ago, it was $50. If you punch another student, you pay a $50 knas. Okay, so fine. A fellow is called into Rabbi Dvidovitz's uh, principal's office for punching somebody in the face. Rabbi Dvidovitz asked a few people what happened. He got the story. He said to the fellow, okay, pay up, 50 bucks. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, Rabbi, wait a minute. I'm not paying the fine. Rabbi Dvidovitz said, why not? Look, it wasn't a real punch. It barely hurt my knuckles. It wasn't like a real punch. That's not a $50 punch. That was just, a, you know, a graze. You see, he's probably serious in what he was saying. But it's irrelevant how your knuckles feel. What's relevant is, what does it feel on the receiving side of that punch? I don't care what your knuckles feel like. I care what the guy's jaw feels like. And believe it or not, even though this may sound ridiculous... We human beings, on a regular basis, sort of make other human beings into physical objects, non-entities. We don't relate to them as people, so we could be the nicest guys in the world. We could be the nicest people in the world, but I fail to understand that that's a human being, and hence doesn't make me feel their pain, and I don't recognize them. I got a call when I was still single. A woman called me up and said, you're a tzaddik. You're a tzaddik, and I have such a good shidduch for you, I want to read you this shidduch. Now, I didn't, didn't then, and even now, don't receive enough compliments that I turn them down. So I just said, um, ma'am, I don't know you very well. What are you referring to? And then she explained to me how she knows I'm a tzaddik. And I'll explain to you the story, and you'll soon see what a tzaddik I was. <clears throat> I was a learning rebbe in a teenage camp. And there were about 150 boys between the age of 13 and 15 in the camp. And there were also a few students who were brought in from a program. One of the fellows was actually autistic. The objective was to try to mainstream him into a regular environment. Hopefully it would be a good social environment so that he could be mainstreamed in the future. And had a program to bring in people with various disabilities. One of them was this autistic kid. Okay. In any case, from day one, it was a miserable failure. If you know high school boys sometimes can get a bit nasty, they started mocking the kid, making fun of him. As you know, autism is basically some type of locked-in, almost syndrome where a person just goes into their own shell and won't find. They started making fun of him, throwing things. Hey, stupid, hey, idiot. They would throw things across. He was being mocked, made fun of. It was the most horrible thing to watch. <clears throat> The person who was running the program, Rabbi Rakov, decided the third day of camp to do something about it. He asked someone to take this fellow after dominating outside, and then he stood up and he told 150 teenagers the following. He said, fellas, I want you to know one thing. This young man's life is in our hands. If he comes out of his shell, if he becomes a normal functioning human being, it's within our capacity to bring him out but if not, we could be damaging him, and for the rest of his life, he may remain in that state. Guys, it's in your hands. And that's about all he said. 
If I were to tell you the environment changed, it would be an understatement. From that day on, he was the pet of everyone. I and my learning group, they particularly adopted him. He was sat right in the particular seat. Anything he needed, the guys doted on him, took care of him. And for the rest of the summer, he was considered almost a celebrity. His aunt found out about it. She didn't realize it was Rabbi Rackle who made the speech. She thought it was me. I got credit for something. Anyway, it wasn't my Bashert. I didn't marry that woman, nor the person she was writing me to. But the bottom line was, here's a very important lesson to understand. These 150 high school kids, were they kind or cruel? Were they nice guys? I want to prove to you that they were very, very nice guys. The minute they understood that there's a human life that's in their hands, the minute they understood what was at stake, they turned like, I'm done. But what happened till that point? Until that point, they were cruel, they were mean, they were nasty. Were they nice guys? 100%. The problem was they weren't dealing with a human being. They were dealing with an object, a thing. Things you make fun of, things you mock, things you throw things at. They failed to understand that this was a human being. The first stage of really becoming a mensch working on all of the issues of interpersonal relations is to understand that every human being I come into contact with is a sensitive human being. There's a foot attached to the shoe. It's not my knuckles. It's the face. It's a human being whose entire life may be changed based on the way I treat them, based on how I act with them, based on my attitude towards them. And understanding that everyone I deal with is a human being is, again, the first stage in developing interpersonal relations, in terms of developing into a mensch. But I think that's obvious. There's a second stage that's not as obvious. The second stage, I think, is well illustrated by something that Dale Carnegie said. Dale Carnegie wrote a book that is well, well worth reading. I cannot recommend this book enough. His book is called How to Influence People and Win, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It is a phenomenal read. And I highly recommend it. Anyway, he tells the following. He says he likes strawberries and cream. Yet whenever he goes fishing, he does not put strawberries and cream on the hook. Why? Because the fish like worms. So what he likes isn't relevant. What's relevant is that the fish like worms. Hence, every time he goes fishing, he puts worms on the hook and not strawberries and cream. And let me explain to you what that point is. You see, I am a unique person with likes and dislikes Ways of doing things, ways of looking at things. But you are very different. And it doesn't matter how I look at things. It doesn't matter whether this particular issue bothers me or not. If it bothers you, that's a problem. And so many times when we're dealing with people, we can be the nicest guy in the world, the nicest person in the world, but it's from my vantage point. It's from my way of viewing things. And if I look at the world from my vantage point, I can be very nasty, very mean, very hurtful, never intending it, and never even understanding that I'm really doing a lot of damage. Let me share with you a very important point to understand. What is the first rule of negotiating? You want to negotiate a deal, what's the very first rule you have to know? It doesn't matter how tough you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are in negotiating skills. You know, you sit down with your tough New York City lawyer, he bangs on the table, my client won't accept the penny less than $2 million. The key to negotiating is knowing what the other side wants. You want to hear an illustration of that? 
Thomas Edison invented the what's now known as the electronic stock ticker. It's what used to print off the stock market, used to print on a very thin little piece of paper. It was a tremendous invention. He came up with it at the tender age of 23, and he wanted to sell it. The ideal customer for this was a gentleman, General Lefferts, who was the head of a large stock exchange, gold and stock telegraph company, and Thomas Edison made an appointment to meet General Lefferts. Thomas Edison writes that he wasn't sure what to charge for this invention. He thought it was worth 5000 but maybe that was too much. The entire night before he was to meet 3000 5000 maybe 4000 he was so flustered by the time he met with General Lefferts that he couldn't even name a price. He said to General Lefferts, you offer something. At which point General Lefferts said, how does $40,000 sound? Thomas Edison later said he almost fainted. After signing the papers, he sold away the agreement. Money was paid. General Lefferts tells a little young Thomas Edison, you know, fellow, you're not too bright. How so, sir? I would have paid ten times the amount for that invention. Thomas Edison said, you might be right, but you're not that bright either. I would have sold it for one-tenth of what you bought it from. <laughs> you see, it doesn't matter what you value that item at. It matters what the other party considers it. It's not about me, it's about you. And the first rule in interpersonal relations is understanding what the other human being is going through, what's in their mind, what's going on in their life. And I could be the nicest guy in the world, but if, if I'm not attuned to your world, if I'm in my world and not your world, then I'm going to put strawberries on that hook, and I'm not going to catch any fish, and I'm going to do an awful lot of damage, hurting people in various ways. So if the first rule of human relations is remembering that we're dealing with people, sensitive, caring people who are deeply hurt by what we say or don't say, the second rule is to become a student of other people. Not how I view things, not what's important in my world, but how you feel about it, how you view it. But those two rules will get you very far, but only so far. If you'd like to understand the Torah's concept as to how a person is expected to behave, I'd like to share with you Ramban on a very well-known pasuk. Ramban says that there's a pasuk in Chumash that's often misunderstood. And the pasuk says, the Ahavata l'reacha love your friend as your neighbor, says Ramban, it cannot be taken literally. How is it possible that the Torah would expect me to love you as myself? Me, I do anything for. That's natural, that's self-preservation. That's a survival instinct. How could I ever be expected to love you as myself? Imagine the following. Imagine you have a roommate. Imagine you're in a college dorm or yeshiva dorm and, and you're sleeping one night and you, you call out to your roommate, Hey, Shmiel, what? Shmiel, what? Shmiel, I'm, I'm thirsty. So go get some water. No, no, but Shmiel, I'm, I'm real tired too. So go to sleep. No, but I'm thirsty. So get some water. No, Shmiel, go get me a cup of water, okay? What do you think his reaction is going to be? <laughs> You mean I should get out of bed to get you a cup of water? I think he'd take a shoe and throw it at me. Why? You want to get a cup of water, get out of bed and get yourself a cup of water. I'm not going to wake up in the middle of the night for you. And says Ramban, that's correct. It's absurd to assume that the Torah would demand that I really love my neighbor as myself. It's not possible, says Ramban, and it's not what the Chumash means. Says Ramban, would you like to know what Pshat in this Pesach is? And he says what it means is as follows to wish for your friend everything that you wish for yourself 
What do you wish for yourself? Honor, money, a good life, everything that you want for yourself, you wish for your friend. Every time your friend has a tremendous simcha, be with him in his joy. Every time he suffers a loss, be with him in that pain. Be with him in his highs. Be with him in his lows. Understand that there's one unit. The Klayasar, the Jewish nation, is one unit. Feel his pain. Enjoy his joy. Be with him. Wish for him everything that you wish for yourself. And my friends, that concept is a very, very powerful concept, and it's attainable. It's doable. Would you like to know what I believe Pshat in Bukhat? Naradan's question was you see, Naradan had witnessed Yirmiya Hanavi get up and tell the people year after year if you do not repent God will throw us out of this land if you do not change your ways he will send an avenging enemy who will destroy us Yirmiya was not respected for his words he was mocked, he was abused he was imprisoned not only wasn't he listened they threatened his life Year after year, he got up and said his speech. Year after year, he was mocked and ignored. And after everything, after many, many years and many, many attempts, every word that he said came true. There's only one reaction for a human being in that situation, and that's to take a very sharp finger, point it, and say the words, I told you so. Any human being would have done that. And what Nebuzaradan assumed Yirmiya would do, would say, I am vindicated. All my years that you made fun of me, all the years that you mocked me has been proven that you're wrong and I was right. But that wasn't Yirmiya's reaction. He felt such a pain. He joined the older men and the younger men. Wherever they were enslaved, he joined them. And Nebuzaradan looked at him and couldn't understand him. In everything that he studied about the human being, in everything that he understood about human relations, this was an anomaly. It didn't make sense. Why? Because this was a truly great individual. This was a leader of his nation who felt the pain of his nation, who felt one with them, who fulfilled exactly what the Ramban says, be one with your people, be with them in their joy, be with them in their sadness. And he was so bound to his people that when they suffered, despite the fact that he warned them, despite the fact that he predicted it, he felt so broken that he shed tear after tear until he felt he had to join them in their enslavement. The Gentile could not understand it because in all of human relations it doesn't make sense until you begin working on exactly what the Torah describes, perfecting yourself as a human, feeling another Jew as your brother, as your sister, joining with them and really, really feeling attached to another human being. Last night, before the Suda Samachsekis, my family sat down to eat a meal. And at the table, I asked my children the following question. Beis was destroyed because of baseless hatred. That is a sin that we have to fix now. I asked my children, how many of you feel hated? Not a one. How many of you hate other Jews? Not a one. What's going on? If the only reason the base of Mikdash is not rebuilt is because of baseless hatred, how could it be that none of you feel hatred to another Jew? How could it be that you don't feel other Jews hate you? It's something's wrong. And my friends, think about that. If I were to ask you to right now take out a pen and paper and write down the ten people you hate most, I assume it would be a very short list. 
And if I ask you on the other side of the column to write down the 10 people who hate you most, I also hope it would be a very short list. So what do we do with this Gemara? The Gemara is telling us the base of was destroyed for baseless hatred, and it's not rebuilt because every generation we repeat the same error, we're still involved in it, yet in our world that's not reality. And I'd like to share with you what I believe this Gemara is saying to us. You see, I have a close circle of people that I care about. My family, my friends, and everyone else just about doesn't exist. You see, my close group of friends are my friends, and everyone else is whatever. They're just whatever. You know, Jewish, not Jewish, gender. it doesn't matter. They're not real people. They're just objects. They're just whatever. They fill space, kind of like on Fifth Avenue when you're bombarded by 5,000 people every moment. They're just there. Would you like to know what I believe this Gemara is saying to us? <clears throat> if you see a sign go up about a young woman stricken by cancer and you don't feel a tremendous pang of I, that's terrible. If you don't take out a Tehillim and cry when you say those words, you're engaged in a very powerful example of baseless hatred. Why? Because you're not bound to that person. You're not one nation. You're not one people. They're worse than hated. They're not even people. They're objects. They don't even exist in your world. When you hear about a tragedy and you don't cry, when you hear about a tremendous joy, a young couple couldn't have children for 10 years and then miraculously they had a child, if you don't feel that simple, then you know what's lacking? You're not connected to that person. They're divorced from you. You're not part of your nation. You're a separate entity. They're separate from you. And that is exactly the issue. You see, my friends, there's only one cure for this phenomenon, for us to get it. We're one nation, one people. I have to feel your pain, feel your joy. When I relate to the Klyestral, to the entire nation as one unit, my people, my nation, then I feel their pain, I feel their joy, and that is the opposite. That is the cure for sinaschinam. The sinaschinam, the baseless hatred in our generation, is by making people into objects, making them into whatever. And again, it's that New York City stare that you get when you go somewhere where you're not well known. And people don't even say hello. They don't even say Shalom Aleichem. They don't say Good Shabbos. They don't say what's your name. Think about that. The next time you're down in shul and someone comes in and you don't say the words, Hi, I've never seen you before. Are you new here? Would you like to know what the reaction that you get when you do that is? Oh, no, I'm so glad you asked. But you know what people's reaction when you don't do that is? I don't exist. And my friends, I can share this with you. I've walked into many a shul in many a place where I literally had the sense that I did not exist. I was an object or whatever. And that's but one small manifestation, one small example. Not long ago, I went on a shiva call. A 40-year-old fellow was playing ball, took a jump shot, cardiac arrest in midair, fell to the floor, dead. The mother and father were sitting shiva, and it happened to be that the woman, the mother, was a very close friend of my mother. My mother passed away 10 years ago. I haven't spoken to this woman in literally a decade, but I felt I had to be at the shiva house. 
So I walk in, and you have to understand, this was a 40-year-old young man who had recently gotten married, had a child, and it was an awful lot of pain. When I walked in the door, and the very first thing this woman said, oh, you're here. Maybe you can answer the question. I've asked this to everyone, and no one can answer me. Why did it happen? Why my son? Why so young? Now, if you ever listen to the shmooz, you know I don't shy away from those topics. There's an entire shmooz, 163, <clears throat> Only the Good Die Young, where I deal with exactly <clears throat> this issue. But a shiva house is not the time to wax philosophical, and I said nothing. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> the only thing <clears throat> of substance that I said was my mother would have been here, I have to be here. And then I cried, because I remembered this 40-year-old as a 7-year-old boy lying in bed. I'll date myself, I'm a little bit older, I was babysitting, <clears throat> and I mentioned that image of a little, little guy in a huge, huge bed. She started crying, I started crying, and I said nothing else, and I left. My father told me, a few weeks after this, this woman called her up, called up my father, and said, when your son came, it brought me such a nachama, such a consolation. And you know why? It wasn't anything wise that I said, because there was nothing wise to say. But I really, really felt the pain. And that is the ultimate goal when you're being Menachem Oval. It's to join that person in their low, to be with them. That's the consolation, that's the Nechama. But that's the point. The point is to understand that there are other people out there. People who are not shoes, <coughs> that have no feet attached to them. It's not the knuckles, it's the face. Understanding that there are sensitive human beings out there, and every one of them who is a member of my people, I'm one with them. I'm bonded to them, I'm deeply concerned for their benefit, <clears throat> I'm deeply distraught when they have a tough situation, because we're one unit. And that understanding is a fulfillment of a mitzvah, say, the Ahavta If you do that, you're joining that person. If you do that, you're obliterating this thing called sinaschinam, and you're living on a much higher plane, a much higher level. I'll share with you an interesting example of this. The Stipler was one of the great leaders of the Jewish nation. He passed away, I guess by now, almost 20 years ago. When he was already in his 80s, the entire Jewish nation, it seemed, used to come to his door with all types of problems and issues, questions, people who were sick, brachas, all types of things. The Kamenitz Rosh Hashiva came to the stipler's daughter and said, I have a very important question that I must discuss with the stipler. Can I speak to him now? It was an urgent question, and this was a very important person. The stipler's daughter said, I'm sorry, he's saying to him now. The Kamenitz Rosh Hashiva said, can I wait? Stipler's daughter said, fine, sit down and wait. Kamenitz Rosh Hashiva sat down, and Stipler was over here. He was already 80, he was largely deaf. He didn't notice anyone coming in outside the room. And the Kamenitz Rosh Hashiva described what he saw. The Stipler picked up a Tehillim and began saying two parakim of Tehillim. He started crying, and he started saying it with such tear-felt emotion. And when he was done, the second parak, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said the Mishabera for the holder for the sick person. At which point the Kamenitz Rashiva realized that he's done, the is finished, and he can go over and talk to him. But the problem was that the stipler didn't stop. He picked up the Tehillim again, said another two chapters, picked up another single paper, and said the Mishaberach. 
there was a stack of papers on his desk that pe- person after person had left for this one who was sick, this one who needed a child, and this one who needed a panasa. He sat there for two hours saying two chapters of Tehillim for each of the separate papers with tear-felt entreats. And you have to ask yourself, where does a human being get such a powerfully loving heart from? And the answer is that something that's worked on. It's not something you're born with, not something that's granted by birth. It's something that you work on, and would you like to know the way to work on it? And the way to work on it is to train yourself. One of the greatest exercises in growth that you could ever do is say, I will now dedicate myself from now until I leave this earth to do a single chesed every day. I will find an act of kindness kindness to do for somebody, not because I want them as my friend, not because I intend reward, <clears throat> I want to do something for somebody else, and if you do that every day of your life, you start changing, you start relating to people in a very different way, you start feeling their pain, and you start relating to them, and you have a very different sense of things. I think there's a tremendous lesson to learn from the Ruzaraja. He was a philosopher, he studied human beings, but what he saw in front of him was something he had never experienced before. Here is a human being who spent years being abused, years being mocked. How is it possible that he now feels the pain of his nation? The reason is because Yirmi Hanavi had spent his life perfecting himself. But the stages of perfection were number one understanding it's not just whatever. It's not inanimate objects out there. It's not faces. They're human beings. Every one of them has a heart that feels, that cares. Every one of them is a very, very valuable, precious, sensitive person. And then Yermia took the second stage in development, and that is understanding that what I like doesn't mean you like. I may like strawberries and creams, but that's not what I put on the hook. The great secret of negotiating is understanding what the other party wants. The great, great secret of interpersonal relations is understanding what matters in your world. What do you care about? What's important to you? What words do I say that help? What words do I say that hurt? And understanding other people. But after you've gotten through those two stages, it's time for the real greatness of a human, and that's to really bond to another human being, to feel their pain, feel their joy, be with them, be with them at the simcha. When you go to a wedding, instead of just going there and whatever, joining with them, understanding, wow, I'm so happy for this person dwelling on it, spending 10 minutes before and thinking what it means this person found their brasher, I'm so happy for them. And if you do this, you grow, you work, you change. The Besamekdash can be rebuilt at any time. And what it takes is not picking up arms and fighting the Islamic Jihad, not writing letters to Washington. What it takes is for us to get it. For us to understand that Hashem created this world and God runs this world. And there's one thing that God wants from His people. He wants us to be happy, to grow. He wants us in our land to enjoy life. He wants to give because Hashem, God, is the ultimate mate, the ultimate giver. Every mitzvah in the Torah was given for man's benefit. Hashem created us. God created us for our benefit. All that He wants is what's good for us. But there are certain things that are required for us to get back to that state where we get rid of this heavy yoke of exile, where we get rid of the physical oppression, the mental oppression, the depression, and every problem that comes with it is one major change in our attitude. And that is we have to relate to ourselves as a nation. 
We have to relate to the Klal Yisrael, the people as one nation, one people. I have to feel your pain. You have to feel mine. We have to bond together. And if we do that like that, in a heartbeat, it ends. There are many, many signs of Mashiach being imminently here, right around the corner. But we have to get it. And we have to wake up. We have to do the final steps. And Chazal tell us the reason the base Mikdash was destroyed was because we didn't relate to one another this way. And that's ultimately the way to bring it back. Let me close with one last story that I think is a prime example of the greatness of the human. There was a young boy in the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva in Radin who took ill. He went to the doctor, doctor couldn't cure him, went to a more famous doctor, couldn't cure him. He went to every known medical expert that they could track down. No one could cure this fellow. He got worse and worse, and it looked very grave. It looked like he wasn't going to make it. He comes to the Chavetz Chaim and he says, Rebbe, the doctors have given up on me. What could I do? Chavetz Chaim said, okay, listen to me. I want you to go to such and such town. There's a certain sonic in that town. I want you to get a bracha from the sonic. And if you get this bracha, everything will be fine. But, says the Chavetz Chaim, before the fellow leaves, you must promise me that you will not tell a soul. You must promise me that you will not tell anyone about this, not about the tzaddik, not about the bracha. It has to be forgotten. The young fellow promises. He gets on a train, finds that town, finds that tzaddik, gets a bracha, comes back to the shiva. And lo and behold, a few weeks pass, he's a little bit better. A few weeks later, he's almost cured. Within a short amount of time, he's completely cured. A miracle. Many, many years later, this fellow had grown up, got married, started his own family, and he's already middle age when his wife's sister gets ill. And this fellow recognizes that she has the same symptoms that he had many years earlier when he was back in yeshiva. He doesn't say anything about it, but as his sister-in-law gets sicker, he sort of mentions to his wife, you know, I also have those same symptoms. His wife is curious, but she doesn't say much. And then as the sickness progresses, the fellow says, that exact thing, I had those exact symptoms. And his wife starts getting curious. Well, what happened to you? I can't tell you. Well, what happened? You're, you're well now. I can't tell you. I can't discuss. Well, what ha- you're, my sister's going to die. You have to tell me. How did you get cured? I can't tell you. She presses day after day, day after day. Finally, he says, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. <clears throat> I was sick. I went to the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim sent me to this town, to this particular tzaddik. The tzaddik gave me a bracha. I got well. That's it. So his wife said, so we have to find the tzaddik. We have to find out. They search. They find the town. The tzaddik was long dead. But then a strange thing happened. This person, now middle-aged, begins contracting the very same disease that his sister-in-law had, that he had been cured of, that he had as a boy. And his symptoms get worse and worse. And he's starting to wonder, what is it? What is it? Oh, no. I promised the Chavetz Chaim. I promised him I wouldn't tell. Maybe it's because I told, but that doesn't make sense. I don't know. He gets on a train and he travels to Radin. The Chavetz Chaim is an old man, can barely leave his armchair for any length of time. And the fellow comes in and says to the Chavetz Chaim, Rebbe, do you remember me? Of course, of course. Rebbe, do you remember that I was ill? Of course, yes. Well, I've contracted that same disease. 
you made me promise I wouldn't tell anyone and I revealed the promise could it be because of that that I'm sick again Chofetz Chaim let out a sigh Oy. when you came to me it was 40 years ago I was a young man I took on to fast for 40 days I'm an old man now I can't do that anymore and I'd like to share with you the lesson of the story the Chavetz Chaim felt another Jew was in trouble and he made up to fast for 40 days and that was the cure for this young man but he didn't want anyone to know about it so he made up this whole story go to this town, this Tzadik, ask for bracha but don't tell anyone don't tell anyone because people will find out the Tzadik that the Chavetz Chaim was but you see, that is a truly great human being who feels the pain of another Jew, is willing to go, not just the extra yard, but commit himself to helping. And that's a person who is bound to his nation, feels with him, and ultimately that is the solution that we need. Mekadosh Baruch grants us that this be the very last Fishabov that we observe here. Next one, Yerushalayim Havdriya. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.